0: From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes through sun, wind, and water, Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 707-485-8359 and radiansolartech.com. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Good morning, friends and neighbors. I'm very glad to be here with you today, and I appreciate your tuning in and joining us for today's program. We have a terrific, a terrific guest today. He's someone I've known for 30 years. His name is Dr. Rick Doblin, and he is the founder and executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Rick is a historic figure in the movement to legalize various kinds of psychedelic medicines, as well as marijuana. His professional goal has been to develop legal context for the beneficial uses, uses of these substances. So stay tuned and we're going to have a terrific interview with Dr. Rick Doblin. But first, first we're going to do a little bit of mind, uh, body health and politics news and notes in psychology and medicine. Caffeine. What to do about caffeine? Sometimes we drink it. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we get warnings about it. Sometimes we get information about, it, about its medical benefits. Is it a vasoconstrictor? Does it open up our little vessels and give us more blood flow with the oxygen that we need? It's very confusing. A recent report comes out, and it says that those who drank four or more four or more cups of caffeinated coffee a day were 52% less likely to have a recurrence of cancer or to have died than those who never drank coffee, while those who drank two to three cups of caffeinated coffee a day were 31% less likely than the non-drinkers to have had a recurrence or to have died. What does one make of this? Then I read in another journal, in a large study recently on the, in the online journal PLOS1, men who consumed moderate amounts of caffeine, equal to two to three cups of coffee a day, were about 40% less likely to report having erectile dysfunction than those who consumed little or no caffeine. Hmm. Factors such as age, physical activity, smoking, obesity, and alcohol were controlled. That means they kept all of that steady and they just tested the effects of the caffeine. Higher intakes of caffeine were not associated with a greater benefit. Caffeine did not reduce erectile dysfunction in men with diabetes. Diabetes is an erectile killer. But this was a study that shows that, yes, caffeine is reported to reduce erectile dysfunction in regular men by 40%. The researchers are thinking that the caffeine has pharmacological effects that lead to a relaxation of arteries. Remember, I mentioned before that coffee is also a vasoconstrictor. Here, they're talking about relaxation of of arteries and smooth muscles in the penis, thus increasing penile blood flow. What are we to do? We hear about negative effects of caffeine. We hear now positive effects of caffeine. So often this happens to us with various things that we that we take into our bodies very it's complicated caffeine is one of one of the most if not the most frequently ingested uh, beverages on the planet I'm scratching my head here certainly I'm not about to make any kind of recommendations but I am scratching my head what do we do I guess you know what did grandma say moderation moderation in the extreme I've treated people in my career who drank so much coffee that they had serious depression as a result of coming off the coffee. Also, they had visual motor problems with being jittery and and symptoms that felt like anxiety. One of the most severe detoxification experiences I have ever witnessed in a patient in my 50 years was from caffeine withdrawal. Yeah, this was from a guy who was drinking three or four six-packs of Coca-Cola every single day. And when he came off, when we withdrew him from the Coca-Cola, he went through horrendous withdrawal. But that was a great deal of caffeine. Again, scratching my head, looks like moderation. I doubt if very many of us who drink coffee are going to totally stop but I also doubt if very many of us who drink two cups are going to suddenly start drinking four or five cups. But then again, men's involvement with their penis is such that when they read this study, they're liable to be drinking more just to have that positive effect. Well, let's move on. Here's something quite pleasant. Many of us have wondered about the effects of listening to music before going into surgery. Here's a study that indicates that those who listen to music before and even while they're under general anesthesia have less anxiety and need less pain medication during recovery than those who did not. And this was a large study in Lancet, one of the most prestigious, if not the most prestigious uh, medical journal in England, they found that. Studies covered various kinds of musical genres, timing, delivery methods, speakers, headphones, etc., etc., and they followed procedures ranging from routine colonoscopy to open-heart surgery. They measured the length of stay in the hospital, the amount of pain medicine the people took, and much more. Music was associated with a 20% reduction in post-operative pain, that's quite significant, a 10% reduction in anxiety, and a significant reduction in the use of pain medication. It increased patient satisfaction slightly, but it did not affect the length of hospital stay. Hmm. Pain was reduced most when music was played before the operation. Slightly less when played during the procedure and least when played afterwards. But the difference in timing was not significant. Bottom line, if you like music and find it calming, it might help a lot, said the senior author. My thought on this is, hey, how can it hurt? It's music. When I've gone in for surgery, which I have perhaps too many times, I like to listen to Mozart, going in, during, and coming out. I didn't know at the time about this reduction in pain and pain medication and anxiety, but I did know that it made me feel very pleasant going into surgery and after the surgery, listening to the music. Certainly worth considering, music is non-invasive, has no side effects. Well, if you play it at a normal level, that is, I suppose it has side effects if you blast your ears out. But here's an easy way to potentially reduce your anxiety and use less pain medication and have less pain by just using music. Well, let's see, it's 10 after. I've got more news and notes, but we really want to get on to Rick Doblin, Dr. Rick Doblin, I've met him 30 years ago, he told me at the time when I met him at the Esalen Institute, I think it was roughly 1985, he said he was going to go and get his PhD, and he was going to start a pharmaceutical company, and he was going to dedicate his life to working on the legalization of medicines that have hitherto for been illegal. He founded MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's a historic, a historic pharmaceutical company. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Rick.
1: Richard, it's great to be here, and thank you for such an introduction. I, I don't want to think of myself as historic yet.
0: <laughs> You're too young to be historic. <laughs> well,
1: well, right. And also, I think what will make it historic, if we can do it, is getting. Uh, mdma assisted psychotherapy approved as the prescription medicine by the fda and by the european medicines agency and we're currently anticipating that'll happen in 2021 so i've got an awful lot of work to go before uh, the word historic would really qualify
0: why is it <laughs> <laughs> why why i know you're young some of us look at you that way rick because because your founding of maps And the 25 years of work that you've put into it and MAPS has put into it around the globe has been such a breath of fresh air for those of us in the profession of psychiatry and psychology. And for those of us who were around when MDMA was legal, for those of us who saw the benefits to ourselves and to our patients when it was legal, we look at what you're doing as a historic event because there's light at the end of the tunnel. Because as, as you have said publicly, I was at your, your wonderful lecture at the Federal Reserve in San Francisco recently with Stan Groff. And when you said to the public that we're looking at, at, at having MDMA, a legal prescribed medicine in the year 2021, you know the, the whole audience stood and applauded because our, these professions are waiting for this. And that's, I think, what makes it historic. But let's... Yeah,
1: I can, I can accept that. And by the way, this is our uh, 29th year. Next year is our 30th anniversary. Because I, I started MAPS in 1986, uh-huh. uh, one year after MDMA was criminalized in 1985. And, and actually, we're thinking about, for the 30th anniversary of uh, having a, an event in the Bay Area, where what we'd like to do is follow the gay rights movement, where what they achieved was a lot because people came out and said that they were gay. Instead of hiding in the shadows, people proudly acknowledged who they were. And so we're looking for possibly doing a similar event of people that have got some uh, sort of mainstream credibility but have been quiet about the influence of LSD on their lives. We're thinking maybe if a bunch of people were to do it together, uh, it might be less uh, worrisome. And so we're thinking about it, sort of a big coming out as far as psychedelic influences on people's lives.
0: I think that's an excellent idea, and, I, and I, I feel very strongly that almost all, if not all, of the psychologists and psychiatrists that I know who experienced MDMA when it was legal, in their therapist's office, when they were able to use it, and even since, when they have used it undercover, I think an extremely high percentage of us will come out uh, for what you're talking about and go public. I mean, That's
1: fantastic. And I actually kind of got the idea at the American Psychiatric Association Annual Conference this year in May in Toronto. And it was, you know, about 12,000 psychiatrists from around the world come to it. And we were able, for the first year and many, many, many years, to get a seminar a three-hour seminar on psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So it was MAPS and Hector researchers. And also, MAPS purchased a table in the uh, exhibit hall where Big Pharma had all their tables, but they didn't have tables. You know, they, We had a $5,000 table, which was just a table. They had massive exhibits that cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we kind of felt like we had arrived with this seminar and our little table, but what we didn't, predict was fantastic. The president of the American Psychiatric Association, who's president just for one year, and the last thing they do is preside over the conference that they've organized the prior year, the president put on the schedule, and there, there's 10 or 15 things going on at any one time, but he put on the schedule an interview that he did with Ramdas, and it was an hour and a half with uh, discussion after this interview, and we were shocked to see that Ramdas was having an honored place at the American Psychiatric Conference, Ram Dass being a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, and being associated with Tim Leary and Ralph Metzner at Harvard, psychedelic research. But during the interview, the president, the sitting president of the APA announced that when he was 19 years old, he took LSD and he had a profound spiritual experience, dropped out of college, traveled around, studied Zen, became kind of an itinerant Zen monk begging and, and then eventually had a dream that told him to become a psychiatrist and he was basically saying that LSD was responsible for him to become a psychiatrist and he would kept this quiet. This was now, he's 65 years old and at the pinnacle of his career he felt safe enough to acknowledge the role of LSD in his life.
0: And that's why I think you're going to get tremendous support from psychologists and psychiatrists in going public because there are so many of us, Rick, who are in our late 60s and 70s like myself, who are old enough to have been administered these medicines while they were still legal. There are enough of us around who took LSD when it was legal and some of us took it in our therapist's office. I took MDMA for the first time in my therapist's office. Dr. Robert Cantor, down at, who started the uh, Pacific Graduate School of Psychology, regularly used it with me while it was legal. And we, all those of us who have taken it are experientially aware of the profound positive effects that it, these medicines had on us and had on our patients. And so, you know, we've been waiting in the wings for decades for you to come along. And, and really... <laughs> For us, or yeah. you or someone like you, and it happens yeah. to be you, to, to get back these medicines because modern psychiatry is adrift. I mean, you know where it's adrift. The pharmaceutical yeah. companies are creating medicines that Robert Whitaker, in his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, is saying is destroying, is, doing, is wreaking havoc with our neurotransmitters. The medicines that are being used are not helpful. They may be making it worse. And here we have these other medicines that thousands if not tens of thousands of us professionals have experienced have positive effects. But let's get back now just to help our listeners. Give us some background on why of all the psychedelic medicines available, one of the ones that you have focused in on in your research, sponsored research around the world is MDMA. Why did you pick MDMA? What is MDMA? Tell us to our listeners who aren't familiar with it. Give us some background.
1: Okay. Well. First, I guess I should say that um, you know I, I've studied both psychotherapy with Stan Groff and a certified holotropic breathwork trans, uh, practitioner in Stan's first group from 88 to 91. And that I also have kind of a parallel training from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where I got my master's and PhD in the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics. And so combining those two directions, both the politics of drug regulation and also psychotherapy, has led me to conclude that MDMA has an excellent chance of making it through the regulatory system. And one of the main reasons is that MDMA is so gentle. And we've actually heard a lot of people who had difficult psychedelic trips with LSD or psilocybin or mescaline uh, during the, the 60s and 70s, during their youth, and that they have been unable to work through them, and when they smoke marijuana, it brings it back. And So a fair number of people I know don't use marijuana because it brings back difficult psychedelic trips from the past. And we've worked with some of these people and have found that, um, you know, MDMA can help them integrate uh, difficult psychedelic experiences from the past. And so I think from a culture-wide perspective, MDMA's gentleness yet profound nature Will help our culture integrate a difficult psychedelic experience that we had during the '60s. So one of the reasons that we've chosen MDMA is that it's our belief, and, and I think um, most people that work with these substances believe this that um, that the um, sorry that was my my daughter uh, <laughs> yelling. Um,
0: okay. Does she want to come on?
1: Okay. <laughs> uh, no, she's going. She's, she's um, home only for a few more days before she goes to college. So oh. she just told me she's going to the beach oh. in the Cape. <laughs> well, congr- <laughs> right, so yeah.
0: Congratulations, she, uh, congratulations on your daughter's entrance to college.
1: Yeah, That's great. She's, she's, she's really excited about. It. She's, well, it's going to be her second year at Tulane. Um, all right. So what, what I was saying, though, sorry, is that um, we believe that therapists who want to work with these substances are will be more effective if they've tried them themselves. I mean in some ways that's a pretty obvious statement, you know, that if you want to study yoga you go to somebody that practices yoga or if you want to study meditation you go to study somebody that actually meditates. And this idea that if you want psychedelic psychotherapy you should go ideally to somebody that has had these experiences um It makes intuitive sense, but many psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, younger than 60s or 70s that grew up during this period of the backlash have received very little in the way of education about psychedelics, and the education that they've received has been largely negative. You know, the research didn't work out. It got out of control. It causes psychosis. People go crazy. You know, we have to deal with them at the hospitals, so from a point of view of integrating psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy into mainstream psychiatry and psychotherapy, MDMA is more gentle of a substance as compared to the classic psychedelics, and it will be more likely to be adopted by uh, mainstream psychiatrists and psychotherapists. And we've already seen that to be the case in that we have FDA approval for a protocol Uh, where we can limit who's in the protocol to therapists in our training program. And we've been able to bring in therapists from Israel, from uh, the Veterans Administration, from uh, the United States, from England, and have been able to um, give them MDMA experiences in a legal way, in a controlled scientific study, to help them be more effective when they work on our studies. And if we were to be saying to them psilocybin or LSD, I think there would have been uh, several of those people that would not have volunteered uh, for psilocybin or LSD, but were willing to volunteer for receiving MDMA. So that's one part.
0: But what what is the profession of psychiatry and the profession of clinical psychology, what is their viewpoint on the thousands of research studies that were done on LSD while it was legal that indicated profound benefits. And I know you're familiar with this literature, particularly the the research yeah. coming out of England on treating alcoholism. What is What do you think the, these two professions' viewpoint is on this vast amount of literature?
1: Well, I think the, the consensus is that there were some remarkable recoveries, but that when you look at the evidence, there tended to be um, flaws with the methodological design in 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 ways of modern understanding of randomized placebo-controlled double-blind studies that the follow-ups were showing that the benefits lasted six months, but they didn't persist beyond that. And the treatment model that was used back then was what I characterized as one-dose miracle cure. So that what was being tested was, could you give one experience, overwhelming experience of LSD to try to produce a spiritual experience, to try to bring up from people's unconscious what they've suppressed and bring it into awareness and help them see the consequences of what they're doing and then help them have this unit of mystical connective experience that they can draw strength from. And then could that be sufficient? Oftentimes without aftercare programs, to help people start a new life and refrain on a long-term basis from alcoholism. Right. And while it did work with some people, what the, the whole treatment model was unrealistically idealistic in the sense that it was this one-dose model. And what we understand now is that, you know, to really change deep-seated um, patterns of addiction or personality patterns or pains and depressions and anxiety, it usually takes more than one session, and it takes a lot more focus on the integration process. So, I think when people look back at the evidence from the prior study, it tends to get dismissed as being, um, you know, a psychedelic afterglow, but with, um, you know, but it faded over time.
0: So, we, so it, it, mm-hmm.
1: even one dose, if one dose can, on average, help people for six months, that's phenomenal.
0: When, but, you, when you yeah. compare that to the, to the SSRIs and the various medicines that Big Pharma is, is giving us, where you have to take the medicine every single day for the rest of your life, to be able to take it once and get a six-month result is phenomenal. I mean, I'm thinking now of, of Roland Griffiths, Dr. Roland Griffiths to John Hopkins, who was on this program. I know you know Roland quite well.
1: Yeah, it, he, yeah I'll he, see he, him tonight, actually. Well,
0: say, say hello and please give him my warm regards. H- his study... They gave uh, psilocybin once, and they've had positive results, as I recall, a year later. Isn't that true?
1: Yeah, yeah. And those were for um, mostly healthy people looking for spiritual experiences, or they did work with cancer patients with anxiety. And so I I think the research from the past suggests several things. It suggests that LSD can be given safely, that the classic psychedelics can be given safely, that there is preliminary evidence of efficacy sustained over a relatively short period of time, and that with a more rigorous methodological design of studies and um, more focus on the integration process, that these substances could be a remarkable new addition to psychiatry. But one of the things that you said before I think is really pertinent here, which is that the pharmaceutical industry has kind of captured psychiatry And many psychiatrists don't even study psychotherapy at all. They are agents of the pharmaceutical industry and prescribe medication. They have 15-minute appointments with their patients to adjust medication, but they don't really understand psychotherapy. And also we've seen that psychoanalysis has had a lot of assumptions that are not scientifically verified, and the talking cure only goes so deep for a lot of people. And so that model has also been, uh, fallen into disrepute among psychiatrists. And that has left them unprepared for psychedelic assisted psychotherapy because they really have to hone their skills in the psychotherapeutic process. And that's what we're basically trying to do is introduce a new model that some psychiatrists and psychotherapists will be willing to do. And it's more labor-intensive in the short run, mm-hmm. but it has benefits that will be both uh, easing suffering and uh, costing less money in the long run. But getting uh, these drugs approved by the FDA, the European Medicines Agency, then getting insurance companies to cover it, you know, we still have a lot of challenges. But the reason that MDMA is what we settled on is that it will be an easier rollout to psychologists and psychotherapists and we had to think about what is a patient population that would appeal to the American public and help us get over the misinformation of uh, the prohibitionists who funded you know, thousands and thousands of studies about the risks of MDMA or the risks of these other drugs. And how is it that we can sort of both do the proper science that's required by FDA, and also gain the political support that's really required to keep this research moving forward. And then once it comes time to FDA evaluating the data, that would permit the the head of the FDA to say, yeah, I approve this. Mm -hmm. And so for MDMA, we've noticed that the things that it does, it um, reduces activity in the amygdala, the fear producing portion of the brain. It increases activity in the frontal cortex where we put things in association. It stimulates serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine release. And it also releases oxytocin and prolactin, the hormones of nurturing and bonding. And in contrast, PTSD uh, reduces activity in the frontal cortex and increases activity in the amygdala. And it has... um, very, there's only two drugs approved by the FDA, Zoloft and Paxil for PTSD. They have marginal uh, benefits. Um, And there's a large number of people that drop out of traditional non-drug psychotherapies. You know, different estimates say 25 to 50% find traditional psychotherapy for PTSD to be re-traumatizing rather than healing because you have to re-look at the trauma and people are emotionally reactive to it or emotionally numb or avoid it so that what we have is also because of the blunders in our foreign policy and the war uh, in Iraq that was, you know, the unnecessary war in Iraq that, that we have um, a large number of veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder that have failed to obtain relief from the currently available uh, medications or pharmac- or psychotherapies that, that are um, being provided by the VA. Last year, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 billion that the VA spent just on disability payments to um, about 300,000 veterans with PTSD. And that's an annual figure that increases over time. And these are young people, mostly, that's going to continue to grow and last for the next 40, 50 years. So there's an enormous moral debt that uh, Americans feel towards the veterans. There's also a growing awareness of the prevalence of childhood sexual abuse and adult rape and assault. And there's way more people that have PTSD from those causes than even from war-related PTSD. So there's, there was just a terrific article in the September issue of Marie Claire, the women's magazine, about our mdma ptsd research and it it highlighted some of the women subjects in our studies
0: well while, you're, while part- you're on that topic let me inter- uh, just interrupt for a second about uh, literature folks if you're listening in uh, and if you just tuned in this is mind body health and politics uh, i'm your host dr richard miller and our guest today is dr rick doblin who is the f- founder and executive director of maps the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies and um, he was just, he's been talking about the use of MDMA uh, with PTSD, and I'm reminded of the time that I had the good fortune of being with our guest, uh, being with you, Rick, when we went yeah. with a group of scientists to Israel, uh, and, and you were the leader of the group, to talk to them about using uh, MDMA with their PTSD people, because they, so many people there had witnessed horrific events during the Infantata. and. As we both know, what we were told by the by the government of Israel was that they would love to do the, the MAP study, but they couldn't because if they did the research, as I recall, the United States government would sanction them. Now, is well, that, were, is that were, still the yeah. case? Where are we now with other countries well, being able to do research?
1: Well, well uh, that was their fears, you know, and, and Israel is so dependent on security needs to the U.S. So uh, what we had to do was start MDMA-PTSD research in Israel. Uh, Before we could start it in Israel, they said we had to start it in the U.S. Then once we started it in the U.S., they were still nervous until we started a second study for MDMA for cancer patients with anxiety at Harvard Medical School. And that finally uh, helped the Israelis realize that they weren't going to get any pressure from the U.S. for doing things that was already happening in the U.S. So we have a study in Israel. It's with the former chief psychiatrist of the Israeli Defense Forces as the principal investigator. It's at the largest mental hospital in Israel, um, and we've I've just we've been working on it this morning. We're close to recruiting the final uh, subject in the study. We should have the results um, by the end of this year, early next year. Next year, we're getting very good results there. And interestingly enough. Um, One of the meetings that we had when we when you and I were in Israel was with the Israeli Anti-Drug Authority. And so not only did we have to get approval from the Ministry of Health, but we had to get approval from the Anti-Drug Authority. And just last week, uh, the Israeli uh, government eliminated the Anti-Drug Authority completely. (laughs) They defunded it completely. So what we're seeing is that these, uh, like the drug czar's office in the U.S., that there's a a worldwide recognition that prohibition has gone too far. And one of the consequences of prohibition was this effort to restrict research into beneficial uses of drugs that were prohibited, like marijuana, like um, MDMA and LSD. And so now that the zeal for prohibition is declining and we're seeing movements towards uh, the legalization of marijuana and opposition to mass incarceration. President Obama just pardoned a bunch of nonviolent people that were convicted for selling drugs who got excessively long sentences. So we are able now to do research with MPMA in most any country of the world. We have such a track record of safety. And I want to make one more point, too, about something you said earlier about people now in their 60s or 70s in psychiatry and psychology being able to come out. One of the concerns that was expressed 30 years ago about MDMA was one dose, permanent brain damage, and people will be uh, suffering significant and severe functional consequences. But nobody was at the time. And so what they were saying was well, this is the kind of thing that's going to show up over time. You know, we can't see it right now, but as people age, they're going to start showing all these symptoms. Their brains will decline and these symptoms that are covered up by redundancy in the brain uh, now are going to be showing up, you know, once people age. So now that we have people that have aged and we don't see these symptoms, you know, that whole time bomb theory of MDMA neurotoxicity has been discredited.
0: I think it's been—it's so, certainly been discredited around my house because when my therapist gave MDMA to me uh, in the early '80s, uh, I, I know I've taken it over a hundred times. And while I do misplace my keys and glasses quite often, I think I'm still able to talk to you quite coherently. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I want to I read to you uh, uh, an email I got after I announced uh, that you were going to be a guest on the program uh, from a psychiatrist uh, named, uh, named Bruce. I'll leave his last name out. He says, Please let Rick Doblin know that I have immensely appreciated his efforts in bringing intelligent, rational thought to the subject of psychedelic drugs and their place in society.
1: Oh, sweet.
0: Yes, and I've got other emails as well ma- making similar com- comments of appreciation to you uh, because there, there, are, there really are you know, psychologists and psychiatrists in, in the 60s and 70s you know, all over the country who knew about MDMA when it was legal Many of us administer the drug by our therapists, and we know the benefits of it, and we've seen the benefits when we were able to give it to our patients back then. But I also have a question here, and and that's what you were just talking to, uh, about the possible negative effects. And one of the questions is, if there are side effects, such as fatigue that has been mentioned, uh, are there things that can be taken? This is one of the emails to you, wants to know, Rick. Are there things that can be taken along with the MDMA in advance in order to ameliorate uh, this, the negative effects of fatigue and what other uh, negative effects you might mention?
1: Okay, that's a very good question. So the, the first thing to say is that many people, you know, myself included, feel um, exhausted the day after taking MDMA. And what I've done is, and what we do in our therapy, is to take advantage of that, not to see that as a negative side effect, but to see that as a reason to talk about this as a two-day experience, where the second day is for people to rest and reflect and to integrate what happened the first day. So when we do our therapy, we do it at 10 in the morning. It usually lasts till 6 in the evening. People are required to spend the night in the treatment center to be quiet. They can have a significant... Uh, other come and spend the night with them if they want to and then the next day they have a leisurely morning they have several hours of non-drug integrative psychotherapy Uh, they can't drive home somebody else has to come take them to drive home and they're encouraged to rest and then we call them every day on the phone for the first week so this exhaustion we're such a rush in our modern world that thinking about taking two days out for yourself is uh, a novel occurrence for a lot of people. And so we've woven that into the therapy. On the other hand, there, and, and so in the therapy also, we're trying to figure out what does MDMA do by itself. And so we don't administer any substances before or after to help ease this exhaustion or to increase the uh, depth of the experience. But people have talked about 5-HTP, which is a serotonin precursor, and that if you take that um, either before and or after, you can take it both before uh, sometimes to try to make the experience a little bit deeper and after to um, try to uh, recover more quickly from the exhaustion. I've heard reports that that's been helpful. Is 5-HTP
0: an over-the-counter a medicine?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's you get it any helpful store, it's just a serotonin precursor. I see. And And it's something that a lot of people does help with the exhaustion what about but tyrosine uh,
0: what about tyrosine tryptophan lysine and so on that have been talked about any have any report on that
1: well w- no we don't I mean you really you'd need to go to Aeroid, erowid.org erowiD org and they have all sorts of uh, personal accounts of people that have uh, combined various different things with MDMA for different purposes but we don't have any scientific information about it because first off we didn't we we're like um, you know the the court of first impression in a sense. So that even though there's massive experience from you know tens of millions of people that have done MDMA, all of that has taken most of that has taken place outside of experimental context. And so when we negotiate with FDA and European Medicines Agency, we've been um, instructed to just assume we know nothing and then start from the beginning and the ground up. So we didn't want to assume that. Uh, We needed to treat the side effect, we wanted to see how strong the side effect actually was. And it it, it turns out, in our model, it's not much of a problem for people because when you take it during the night at a party and then you go do stuff the next day and, you know, you don't eat properly, you don't drink properly, you know, people are more exhausted. But we we find that people welcome the time out the next day to reflect, and that's an integral part of our treatment. But, but there sure is a lot to be learned about combining it with this, this and that, but we don't have any direct information mm-hmm. on
0: that. You said something there, a couple of things that I want to comment on, and one is you, you pointed out that in our very busy uh, modern lives, taking two days is a really big deal. Two days for personal growth has become a really big yes. deal. There was an article recently that I refer all of our listeners to in the New York Times about workplace practices at Amazon. Mm. Uh, And there was an important piece of research that was done at Amazon. And what they found was that although the actual uh, work experience has improved in terms of better interpersonal communications, uh, fostering people to eat better. The, the, the luncheon and, and the uh, food service in, in uh, corporations has improved markedly to healthier foods, that there are better changes in terms of in th- what's going on in the workplace. At the very same time, current and former, and I'm quoting, current and former employees complained about 80-hour work weeks interrupted vacations regularly, co-worker sabotage in order to get ahead, and little tolerance even for those struggling with life-threatening illnesses or family tragedies. In other words, while certain things have improved, the the, the level of competition and the amount of, of pressure put on employees to work more and more has increased significantly, And and that's something we need to know about. We need to be looking at. And you know, when you said that about we can't even take two days off. You know that. So I wanted to comment on that. And then one other thing you said. You said tens of millions of people have taken MDMA. And you know from your training as I do that there's something called clinical observation over time. That when you have something that's ingested by the public for ten or twenty or thirty or fifty years with no negative results. That counts. That counts as part of science. That means something. Uh, I mean, we know that, you know, from my work at Wilbur Hot Springs, we've had people bathing in those waters for 150 years and never had a complaint to the health department. That means something. It means a great deal, because when people sit in water, some of it goes in their mouths, and, and, and if there's something in there that would make them sick, you'd know it after 10, 20, 30, let alone 150 years. And what I'm leading up to and asking you now, Rick, is... How does this evidence tens of millions of people using this medicine, just as there are tens of millions of people using marijuana? And we do not have reports coming in from all over the United States as we did with cocaine and we have with heroin about emergency room and problems. Tens of millions of people using these two medicines with very little negative effects in the emergency rooms or reports. How does that not affect politics and how does that not affect the professions? What's your opinion on that? Did I lose him? Whoops. I seem to have lost our guest. Okay. Well, I'm just going to continue on until, uh, until Mike uh, is able to make uh, Rick, if you can hear me, uh, what number would we like him to call in on? Bear with us. Rick, if you can hear us, please uh, call back at 707-937-5103. My, Mike, maybe you could uh, try him at the same time. So you understand, uh, my dear friends and list- uh, listeners, what I'm asking here, and I think it's, a, it's an important question, which is how can, you know, how can tens of millions of people be taking something safely and not have it affect the profession? Rick, are you back? No, he's not back. And, you know, we, we know when things are dangerous. I mean, you take a little tiny bit of rat poison or a little tiny bit of arsenic or a little oh. tiny bit of something that gives you the runs, and you know it immediately. Here we have a situation where we have tens of millions of people. 23 million people have taken LSD. Uh, we had a report on it. And, and I'm really wondering, how is it that that has so little effect for so long? And I think part of the answer is, that, unfortunately, the government, very often our government and many governments, are influenced more by morality and ideology than they are by science. Are we still trying to get Rick back on? on, Uh, No, I can't hear him at all. So, these are questions, important questions for us to be asking ourselves. Um, By the way, uh, Rick Doblin, who we cannot get back on for some reason, uh, has been profiled in a book uh, by Tom Schroeder, who was the editor of the Washington Post for a while, an important position. And Tom wrote a book uh, that uh, called Acid Test. And uh, I think it's worth you taking a look at. I interviewed Tom Schroeder about the book uh, on this program, and you can find a, uh, an archive um, of the interview uh, by going to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. I repeat, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, or you can go to psychopedia, that's P-S-Y-C-H-E-P-E-D-I-A, psychopedia.org, to find the, um, the archives of the program. And thank you for bearing with us as we're dealing with some pre- uh, technical problems here. Uh, we lost our guest. I see the phone is flashing over there as well, Michael. Can you, you can see it. We're trying to get him back on. Let's see what we can do here. Hello.
1: Hey, hi, Richard.
0: Hi, hi, Rick. You're back. Thank oh, you thank so you. much. I'm glad you're back. So, yeah. you know, the question I was asking before, and I was repeating for our listeners while you were away, is what, if any, is the effect of having tens of millions of people experiment with so few, if any, admissions to, to uh, emergency rooms and problems around the country and around the world? Does, does this massive amount of use, not influence in any way uh, government or what happens where's the disconnect
1: well it it um, it doesn't influence directly because to make drugs into medicines you need data from fda approved studies but what it does do is that it makes the fda comfortable about mdma or marijuana or lsd in ways that they're not comfortable about any other drug ever approved or will ever be approved because the reason is when Pharmaceutical companies try to get a drug approved by the FDA. At most, there'll be you know ten thousand subjects, and usually it's a lot fewer. Um, usually, several thousand or even several hundred subjects to get a drug approved as the medicine. And once the drugs are released into the market, then you have the one in a hundred thousand side effect or the one in a million side effect. And that's where you see a lot of drugs get withdrawn from the market after they're marketed, after it seemed to the FDA and to the pharmaceutical industry that they were sufficiently safe. But with MDMA and these drugs like marijuana and LSD that have been used by tens of millions of people, we know the one in a million side effects. We know that sometimes people can um, overheat and die when they're dancing all night in hot environments and not having adequate fluid replacements. We know that sometimes people can die from uh, taking MDMA and then drinking too much water and hyponatremia. Um, there's an incredible body of information about the risks of MDMA or ecstasy or MOLLY. And the, the thing to say is that, um, first off, recent studies have shown that most drugs that are sold as ecstasy or MOLLY are not pure MDMA. In fact, it's a rarity that you get pure MDMA when you're trying to buy ecstasy or molly. You usually get uh, MDMA mixed with stuff or no MDMA at all. And the problem there is that, you know, it's hard to say what are the risks of pure MDMA, but there's been over 1,100 people that have taken MDMA now in controlled therapeutic clinical research setting. Most of these people are healthy volunteers, uh, not very many patients. You know, we will be completing our international series of phase two pilot studies at the end of 2015. When I mean, the studies, the long-term follow-ups will go into 2016, but we'll have the primary outcome data from around 90 PTSD patients. And what we'll be able to show is that um, in our experimental conditions, carefully controlled pure MDMA lots and lots of preparation and integration, a male-female co-therapist team working with people for the full eight hours and the whole time for their integrative sessions and, and preparation sessions, that under those circumstances, we're able to deliver MDMA psychotherapy without any lasting negative side effects and with remarkable evidence of efficacy. So remarkable, in fact, that we're going to be applying to FDA for what's called breakthrough therapy designation. And what that is is a program to accelerate the development of drugs for serious and life-threatening illnesses for which uh, there's a large group of patients for whom other available treatments have not worked. Excellent. Usually Excellent. Yeah, yeah, usually it's for new cancer drugs mm-hmm. that are figured out on a genetic basis for certain kinds of people with certain genetic histories. And that's the, uh, the way that in which FDA can accelerate that. And there's only been one drug that, for mental uh, illness for psychiatric purposes that's been approved under breakthrough therapy, and it was S-ketamine, uh, an isomer of ketamine, for uh, refractory depression, suicidal refractory depression. So w- we think we've got about a 50-50 chance of getting this breakthrough therapy designation. And even if we don't, it's a good way for us to present the information to FDA as part Mm -hmm. of our negotiations for Phase 3, which is the studies that really count to make a drug into a medicine, the large-scale, multi-site, randomized, placebo-controlled studies. And we're going to anticipate starting those the end of 2016, early 2017. We'll be uh, completing them and hopefully uh, getting approval by around 2021. We currently estimate those studies will cost around $22 million. Um, we have raised already about half of it in actual money in hand or in pledges. And we recently got a, a $5 million pledge, a million a year for five years, from Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps.
0: Oh, let's hear it for Dr. Bronner. Rick, typically in the research that I've read, the dosage of MDMA that's given to the people is about 135 milligrams. Yes. But I also read a study recently which indicates that some people actually do better on a smaller dose. What can you tell us about dosage, and what can you tell us about boosters?
1: Yeah. Well, a a big part of our um, research, a big part of my uh, dissertation was about how to do double-blind studies with drugs like MDMA, where it's pretty easy to tell if you've got an inactive placebo (laughs) or the full dose. So the the approach that I arrived at, after a lot of thought, was uh, dose response, meaning that everybody knows they're going to get MDMA, but they don't know what the dose will be. And then you'll be blind as to the dose, and then if you show a dose-response relationship, uh, that would be sufficient. So we've tried that. Um, That hasn't worked. The low doses in the neighborhood of 25 or 30 milligrams seem to have an anti-therapeutic effect. People get activated, but they don't get the peacefulness and the reduction of fear. So they're actually confronting their negative emotions, their trauma, uh, without the kind of support that they would need. So that's anti-therapeutic. And when you start getting higher and higher to where people really are um, indistinguishable from full doses, we, we discovered something absolutely surprising, which is that the 75 milligram dose group is doing remarkably well, and they're doing
0: Whoops. Well, we seem to have lost them again, and we are running out of time, so maybe I'll just recap what you're hearing from Dr. Rick Doblin, who's the Founder and Executive Director of the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which is the foremost research organization into psychedelic medicine on the planet. As you heard from Dr. Doblin, they are about to go into their 30th year uh, of existence. Uh, You can find out a lot more by going to Google and looking up the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, you can also reference uh, the book, Acid Test, by Tom Schroeder. Uh, take a look at the book. You can hear my interview with Tom Schroeder on mindbodyhealthpolitics.org or psychopedia.org. And uh, there's, you also heard uh, Dr. Doblin reference a very important website for information uh, into these medicines called Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D, aerowid.org. It's an excellent uh, reference. And um, you can also send me an email anytime uh, dr, dr. dr. Richard L. Miller at gmail.com. I repeat, dr. Richard L. Miller at gmail.com. I welcome your comments and I very much uh, welcome your ideas for future shows uh, and, uh, and look forward to hearing uh, from each of you. Um, Upcoming shows that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, We're going to be having uh, a distinguished professor on in October, Nick Cousy, who comes to us from the University of Wisconsin. And he's done a lot of original research in LSD. Uh, We're also going to be having uh, the authors of a very interesting book that I'm going to give you a preview on. Uh, It's called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. And uh, these are two uh, computational uh, PhD uh, sociologists. What is a computational sociologist? It's a person who, instead of interviewing people, mines the Internet for what people are actually doing. And what these people have done is a massive piece of research, perhaps as big as or bigger than anything since the Kinsey Report about 60 years ago. They've done a massive piece of research into what is it that the United States is looking at when they look at pornography. Just where are they going? What sites? What are they doing? And instead of interviewing people and having to rely on whether people are telling the truth or not, they got access to where the American public is actually going. So this is going to be a very, very exciting and interesting uh, interview coming up. So we're reaching the end of our time today. I thank you so much for joining us and being here and listening in. I, I welcome your thoughts on the program. Uh, I thank you so much for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our Wyock staff and our in-studio engineer, my friend Mike Delora. Kindly join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. <music>